One of the beauties of being a father, I'll be honest with you, I, I think of one of the great joys of being a father is you're able to pass movies down to your children. And they get to watch some of the movies that have so blessed you. I call these the dad's movie list. Do you guys have dad's movie lists where your dad would show you movies and he really thought they were good, but they weren't at all, but you would go, you grew up thinking they were really good? My dad has a ton of movies like that. Usually they would have Jerry Lewis in them, Abbott and Costello, or Charlton Heston. You love the Charlton Heston movies, or Gene Autry. And so you show them to your kids, thinking they will love those movies, and then they'll look at you in this strange bewilderment saying, Dad, what was that movie? What was that? Tom, I'm sure you're familiar with that. Why, Dana nodded really quickly to that. <laughs> I have a ton of movies on my list that remind me of my dad. And it brings great memories when I watch them, but there's one in particular that's a 60s blockbuster. And I showed it actually to my kids yesterday. One of my, uh, my daughter had a friend over for a little bit, and I said, you've got to watch this. She made it through five minutes and said, I'm leaving, I'll see you later. The movie is called, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Any of you ever seen it? Raise your hand if you've seen this movie. You're not, most of you have and you're embarrassed. Some of you have no idea what this is. This is a wonderful 60s movie with all the best comedians in the 1960s. The plot line's really simple. This man stole a ton of money, thousands upon thousands of dollars, and has it buried in a park in California. And so he's running from the cops and he's on a highway in California, bending highway, and his car's going over 90, and he hits the curb and goes over the side rail and his car plummets and he's about ready to die. But a no, number of people gather around him and he tells them that there's a treasure buried under a big W, a big W. So the rest of the movie is all these eight people go to look for this treasure and it is sheer chaos. It's actually a very exhausting movie. After my kids watched it yesterday, they said, Dad, that movie drove me crazy. I don't know how you did, I don't know how you can make it through two hours. It's so chaotic, loud, and exhausting. That's the point of the movie. It's a mad, 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 mad world. And so is ours. And so is ours. It has always been this way, and it will always be this way. So what I would say, first of all, is don't be surprised how 2020 has been turning out. It's actually normal. The madness of this world should not shock us. Yes, COVID has been chaotic. I would say the media has been noisy and obnoxious, especially during a political year. And I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted with this whole mask thing. I'm exhausted with stores closing, opening, closing. I'm exhausted really with the number of funerals I've had to do. I'm exhausted. But that's the way it's always been. Every generation has tasted the madness of this world. Even the Apostle Paul, as we've been reading in 1 Corinthians 15, has faced madness in the church. Problem upon problem, argument upon argument. He has in his lifetime, he was run, uh, run down, hunted down, mocked, beaten, robbed, shipwrecked, ignored, and whipped. 
And what we're going to do at the end of chapter 16 in Corinthians, if you could open there, is he has a final word to people who are living in this crazy world. And I want to title this, Serving God. How do we continue to serve God in this crazy world? For 15 chapters, he's been dealing with specific issues. Now he's going to give some encouragement and instruction as he's finishing up his letter. And to me, it's very practical. This may be the most practical passage in all of 1 Corinthians. But his whole objective is to really give us a roadmap how to continue to serve God in a crazy world. But before we jump into chapter 16, I want to kind of talk about a what I would say is a very true spiritual axiom. In the book of John, chapter 1, Jesus comes into the world, and John the writer says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So he's saying three things. Number one, the world by itself, before Jesus came into it, it's dark. It's an ontological truth. By ontological, it means that is the way it is. You can't argue past it. You can't get upset with it. You can't really fight it. It's the way it is. And so by dark, spiritually speaking, darkness, according to the Bible, means it's going to be confusing, chaotic, frustrating. It's going to be, in a sense, experiencing destruction and degradation. It's going to include sin, evil, hatred, malice. The world without God is a mess. It's a mad, 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 mad world. The second thing I'd say about this statement is that the light has been sent to shine. We know this, but we forget this. John says that not only does darkness exist, but when light comes in, it is intended to shine. The darker the world becomes, the brighter the light should be. And did you know you, who have God himself in your life, should shine too? You are the light of the world. The light is not hidden under a bushel or under a bucket. It's meant to shine. So what I would say is we shouldn't be scared of the darkness. Jesus came to defeat the darkness, and he left his spirit so we will continue to shine in the darkness. We shouldn't be shocked by it. We shouldn't be angry by it. We shouldn't feel like it's, we're victims when the darkness is even brighter. My dad would say this. He would say, we as Christians have two options. We can either complain about the darkness, or we can light a candle to help others to see. And the third point is, when we shine, we are not going to be overcome. Actually, we become overcomers. We, we go to a campfire. When we light that first stick in a campfire, it was dark before, but the light shines on the darkness. The darkness doesn't snuff out the light. So what that means is the light is stronger than the darkness. So if you are the light, you should be, by nature, stronger than the darkness. We should be effective. Look at verse 9 real quick. Paul is, he's basically acknowledging both truths. 
that when the light starts shining, it shines. Look what he says in verse 9. He says, a wide door for effective work is open to me. That means where he looks, the light, it has so many opportunities to shine. But on the other end, and there are many adversaries, that it's still true, the darkness still is there. It's going to try to snuff out the light. The reason why, if you don't have any light, the darkness wins. But once the light shines, the darkness is threatened and it doesn't like it. So we should never be surprised that there's resistance to the gospel message. It's the world we live in. It's a mad, 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 mad world. So Paul is going to encourage us to keep shining. And even though it seems like the darkness is encroaching, which is the nature of darkness, we are going to find what I would say three major areas in life where there's always going to be darkness. And those are the areas we're sent into as light. And we are supposed to respond in a specific way. So what we're going to do is talk about the, how darkness encroaches. So I'd say, first of all, darkness encroaches, or darkness comes so often in the form of economic hardship. That's what we're going to see in Paul's day and age. Because we live in a fallen world, according to Genesis chapter 3, we must now live by the sweat of our brow, and there's going to be thorns and thistles where there wasn't before. Thorns and thistles means it's going to take labor to gain substance. It's going to be hard. So you could say it like this. The fall's darkness encroaches on this world often in the lack of resources for people in this world. So poverty, unequal wages or no wages, constant want and economic hardship are the result of a broken world. That's not a political statement, it's just true. So the first question is, and what Paul is going to address, is how should the light respond in a world where you're going to often see economic hardship? When you see your brothers and sisters struggling, what should people of the light do? Look at what he says in verses 1 through 5. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper. Some versions say, as they feel compelled to do, meaning according to your substance or what you have to give. So that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you credit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So you could say... When you see your brothers and sisters struggling economically, what should people do? Paul will say, people of the light, give to those brothers and sisters in need. If you, to, to know the, basically the context of this, you can read it in Romans 15, 25 to 27. You can read it in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. The believers in Jerusalem, where the church started, were suffering some economic problems, famine, Roman uh, injustice. And what Paul then did is in the new churches he started in Macedonia and Achaia, which would be the Greek area, Corinthians example, he would raise money, offerings to help the saints in Jerusalem who were suffering in poverty. 
because he's, he's saying we're, we belong to each other, so let's give. So what he does here is he gives an instruction on how giving is to be, very systematic. He says giving should, number one, be part of regular worship. So they would meet on the first day of the week. In Judaism, in Judaism, they would have Sabbath, but Sabbath was Friday at twilight to Saturday at twilight. They would stop, they wouldn't work, and they would worship God on the Sabbath. When the church started, they decided to start meeting on the day Jesus rose from the dead. That's the first day of the week. That would be Sunday. When they met, they would do four things. They would worship God in prayer and praise. They'd get instruction, teaching. They would fellowship with one another. That means encourage each other, pray for each other. And then they would go out and they would evangelize. Part of their service to one another was collecting money. And they did it on the first day of the week. Second thing you can say from this is they did it in a very systematic way. Paul said, set it aside. It was a planned and organized, for, thought through before they came to get the money. And the third thing Paul is saying is it should be an act of grace. Out of, basically, your proportional ability. Not out of compulsion. Often we will, we will say tithing. Tithing is 10% as really the Jewish first fruits. But what we see in the New Testament is there is no mandated legal amount. It is what you feel compelled to give. The way the ESV says, as he may prosper, another version says, as you can, as you feel compelled to do. So this is where the first recorded instruction on regular church giving is outlined. But for what purpose? What is the giving for? Is it so people can get rich and get new mansions and Mercedes? Is it to take advantage of people? No, it's to help those in need, to be light in dark times. So 2 Corinthians 8 9 gives a really clear example of the purpose of giving. And Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. So if you want to shine like Jesus, give. That's a very practical way to be a light in this world. So the second way, what Paul's going to talk about, darkness also comes in the form of ruined plans. This, what we're going to see is Paul's going to talk about his plans to go visit the Macedonians. And they don't always necessarily turn out the way they're supposed to. We live in a crazy world, and because of that, Life does not always, and I would say, uh, it rarely turns out the way we want it to turn out. Rarely. We can make plans, set goals, dream dreams, have hopes, and more times than not, the world has a tendency to be chaotic and ruin all of the best made plans that we have. The question is, how does the light respond? You can plan a big trip to Alabama Gulf Shores and they shut down the beaches because of COVID. What do you do? You can want to expand your business, maybe do new buildings, but the economy crashes because small retail outfits are shut down. What do you do? You plan to retire with your best friend and shockingly they're taken home to be with the Lord. 
This mad world has a terrible way of breaking bad at just the worst times. In Paul's case, look at what he's writing about. And if you notice, he's talking about his plan. And he uses terms that are probable, not definite. He says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps... I will stay with you or even spend time the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you. And then he ends with this caveat, if the Lord permits. He wanted to be with them. He didn't want the church to be isolated. He wanted to encourage them in person. We'll talk about that in a second. But he realized his plans are... Still in the hands of God, says the Lord permits. What we do know, because um, we, we have 2 Corinthians, we have the book of Acts, what we do know, what happened historically, is Paul did not accomplish his original plan. He wasn't able to go spend a long amount of time in Corinth. In fact, he had to wait in Ephesus for a long time. That's where this book was written, in the city of Ephesus. He eventually was able to go to Corinth after a couple failures, but he wasn't able to stay there a long time. So what did he do in the meantime? When his original plans were canceled, did he pout? Did he whine and say, life is just, I, I'm not accomplishing what I wanted. It's just a waste. My life is ruined. What did he do? Look at verse 8 and 9. He made the best of it. And he looked for opportunities to serve God in the meantime. Verse 8, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. In other words, what he's saying is, you know what, my plans are, are changed, but now that I look, I think God had a part to play in it because the opportunities are incredible. Do you know the opportunities during this COVID have been almost unbelievable? Like, really? You wouldn't believe some of the conversations I've had in my office because of COVID. A lot of people have really seen their need for Christ in ways they never did in their luxury and their success. So you could say it like this. What, do, what does the light do during times of ruined plans? They have flexible. That means they have bendable. They are adapting trust. That means they trust the sovereign will of God that he's going to use it even though it's not my plan. And do you know how many people can't do this? I was reading this book called Deep Survival. This is fascinating. I want you to think through this with me. It's written by a man who has studied the personality traits of people who make it through some of the worst times, most difficult times, and not only survive, but flourish during those times. One trait he says that is essential to survive is the ability to adapt and stay flexible. He says this, we must plan, but we must also be able to let go of that plan if you want to survive. One of the problems, he continues, with an obsessive planner, somebody who their whole life is built on planning, is that your plans will get stored in your brain in the exactly the same way past memories do. 
There's a chemical truth to plan. If you're an obsessive planner, you see it, and it becomes almost like a memory, something that has happened, but it hasn't happened yet. So to the brain, the future can become just as real as the past. So you can think of past, like nostalgia. Nostalgia is a weird thing. It's when you see the past, not necessarily as it was, but you have hooked into it with all these emotions, great emotions. Often, people will look at my youth ministry days with a very nostalgic eye. Let's say, when you were youth pastor, it was great. Was it really? You did not see me play the guitar. I only knew two songs. Ken knows my two songs. And I used to make, when students would be sarcastic, I would make them drink from a boot that I wore in Russia for a whole year, and I'd say, you get to shoot the boot. So I'd pour Coke. When they would say something sarcastic, I'd make them drink out of that boot. And parents are like, what are you doing? Well, I'm stopping their sarcasm. Those were the days. Weren't those the days? That was bad youth ministry. You don't do that. Actually, one one of the students from my youth ministry tried it at a more, what I would say, sophisticated church to have his kids shoot the boot. And they said, this is not hygienic. What is wrong with you? I learned it from my youth pastor. That's weird. But in the same way, the future can be nostalgic. Oh, when my family comes for Thanksgiving, we're going to have so much fun. And then my sister started arguing and saying, this did not turn out the way I wanted it to. Has that ever happened? Oh, when I get a new client, my business is going to boom. Or some of us are saying, when December 9th comes and a lockdown is over, COVID will be a bad dream. But what happens when the reality doesn't match the plan? How do I respond? The inflexible person suffers actual grief if they can't adapt. Kind of like a, a death almost, a bad dream. The death of my plans can hurt a lot of people. The flexible person moves on and quickly goes to plan B, C, or D, and they can also praise God through it. That's the problem with inflexibility. People get mad at God. Where Paul says, man, I've got more opportunity I ever had. Well, the writer, this is an interesting phrase, he says, psychologists who study survival say that people who are rule followers don't do as well as those who are of independent mind and spirit. For the rule follower, plans almost become mandates. New rules. And if I don't follow my plans, I've disobeyed my rules. And those of you who are planners know what I'm talking about. And when those plans are no more, the rule follower feels lost. We need to become like Paul and say, if the Lord permits. Because if we don't, we easily will pout and miss the incredible opportunities that God is opening around us. In some sense, COVID has been a blessing. But do you believe that? So the third thing would be darkness is going to be seen in the form of, and this is where I would say darkness invades the most. We don't talk about it too much because it's so practical. But this may be the most important lesson, even during what we're going through now. Darkness, a dark world, a mad world invades in mostly in the form of loneliness, I'd say isolation, and discouragement. Because we live in a fallen world, life gets hard. Job, a person probably who suffered the most in the Bible, says, 
Man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. In other words, life is a way of sapping our joy and isolating us from other people. And I am, I personally am convinced more than anything, yes, this COVID has been bad on our health and our breathing, absolutely. But I think it's done, I think it's done so much damage emotionally, we can't even, it's like we're not allowed to talk about it. But it's been bad. It's almost like when people isolate, they have a tendency to go in their room and they think everybody's against me, nobody likes me anymore, and I just am going to quit. Satan is a master at dividing and conquering. And our hope, even for our churches, I know there's a lot of people watching online, and I understand, we understand that. But we do need to get back together because we do need each other. And we need to pray that they really get a solution for this. Because isolation is killing us. We are made to be with each other. That's how God designed it. Because watch. Look at verse 10 and 11. Verse 10 and 11. Paul says, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. For he is doing the work of the Lord. Timothy was one of Paul's main servants. And he was a young man. So Paul's saying, Listen to him, because I've sent him. So verse 11, so let no one despise him, help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me. So he sent Timothy to help teach and encourage, and then Timothy is sent back to encourage Paul. Timothy was a vital part of his ministry. Look at verse 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers. So Apollos was a brilliant arguer in Judaism. You can read it in Acts. He actually lived with Quill and Priscilla, which we'll see down there in the bottom. But also, Apollos was one of the guys that was considered, oh, do you follow Paul or Apollos or Cephas? And so what it says here is that um, it wasn't his will to come now because some scholars say he didn't want to keep the disagreements going, so he stayed away for a little bit. But Paul does say he will come when there's an opportunity, as if it's a good thing to have another guy show up because people are important. And then this is the most interesting one. Look at verses 15 through 20. And just read the language of this. I'm sure you're not familiar with this because we just, oh, yeah, okay. But listen to what it says. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. So the first converts in this area of Achaia was this family of Stephanus. They must have been amazing. Listen to how he talks about them. They've devoted themselves to the service of the saints. So they give themselves to the church to serve them. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus. Fortunatus, they said, is probably a name of a slave that became a Christian, was freed. And then Achaeus is a man from Achaia. But I rejoice that they're coming because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition. That word refreshment is incredible. So you could say it like this. People of the light are people who bring refreshment. What does that mean? Think of it like this. Take a few seconds, and I'm going to ask you in your mind, Think of a person in your life that brings you refreshment. 
who comes to mind? And think about their character. I'm thinking of somebody, and I, here, let me, let me tell you what they're like. When they come into my presence, they actually want to listen to my life. They don't isolate, and they think, when I isolate, they call me and they say, hey, I haven't heard you from you in a while. How are you doing? I miss you. Second thing about this person is they make you laugh. They make you see the bright side of life. They actually have hope. They're not critics. Whoa, everything's terrible. They're people that actually believe that there's this person called God who's on the throne and everything will be okay. Third thing about a person who brings refreshment is they care about you. And so they will... They will know what your needs are, and often they'll bring you exactly the thing you need. For instance, my mom, when my dad passed away 14 years ago, she's got a neighbor that says, Rita, every time your driveway gets snow, I'll shovel it. This person just comes over, shovels the driveway, leaves, doesn't say anything, doesn't expect anything. But I can't tell you the burden taken off my mom was to take care of a handicapped daughter with a wheelchair, and to know that the path is clean so she can push her out to the bus. Huge. A person of a, uh, who brings refreshment, understand. The word we use for that is empathy. They have empathy. In the, in the Bible, to me, there's three giant words that help lift up the soul of another one. It's empathy, encouragement, and exhortation. Words that help somebody through difficulty. But it needs to start first with empathy. If you start just teaching people before you understand them or you care about them, it doesn't do a lot of help. But if you empathize and care, then you're going to know exactly the word to say. A refreshing person doesn't compete with you. They're not there to look for flaws in your life. They think good of you. A refreshing person comes to learn from you. And then because of that, you want to learn from them. And then a refreshing person sees life with wonder and not boredom. And not sorrow and critiques all the time. Here's my question for you. Are you that kind of person? Do people say you're refreshing? You can tell when you are. You'll walk into a room and people will be happy to see you. If you walk in a room and people go out the back door, like it happens to me all the time, I walk in a room, where'd everybody go? I'm learning, I'm trying. And then Paul has two people that were always refreshing to him, verse 19, the churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Priscilla, it says Aquila and Prissa, most scholars believe that to be Aquila and Priscilla, a husband and wife team who would open their house allow the church to meet at their house. They send you hearty, warm greetings. All the brothers send you greetings. The church is, we need each other. And then look at the bottom here, greet one another with a holy kiss. That was before COVID-19. Hopefully once it's done, we're going to institute this and it's gonna be instituted <laughs> on the lips. It'll be great. Actually, I've got a, my brother-in-law, my sister married this guy, Jimmy, he was Polish, and their whole family would greet each other by kissing. And so when I came in, Jim would grab me by the face and kiss my lips. And then my wife, first time she met him, he grabbed her by the face, kissed her lips. 
She goes, what's wrong with this family? It's, now that is love. But we won't do that because I know you're Dutch. We're going to try handshakes first. <laughs> Final thoughts in a dark world. Paul always ends his letters, usually with short statements to remind us and encourage us, but to push us to faith and to warn us who are ready to give up and quit. So verse 13 are just short statements. He writes, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. What does that mean? That means don't give up, stay committed. Yes, it's hard, but you can do it. God made you strong. He gave you the spirit. And then he adds the balancing touch, verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. Some people are always about seriousness and strong and strength. They need, to, they need to mix it with love so you have a good balance. I once, Francis Schaeffer put it like this, the, most, the, the seriousness of a matter needs to have the same amount of love applied. Some, some Christians are far too serious for their own good, and they haven't laughed in a long time. Love laughs because love hopes, and laughter is a language of hope. Those of you who stop deciding to shine, stop deciding to be what God wants you to be, and who have hidden your light in a bushel basket, be very, very careful. Because look at what verse 22 says. It's a shocking verse. The great, um, verse 22, if anyone has no love for our Lord, let him be accursed. Wow. Our Lord come. That phrase, our Lord come, is Maranatha. Maranatha is often used in the context of Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. How is he going to find you? Is he going to find you as a light? Or is he going to find you as a black hole who just adds darkness? Be careful. We have prayer groups on Tuesday. In last prayer group, someone shared their story. And I'm not going to say who it is. I'm just going to share what it meant to me. Somebody shared their story and said back in 2014, they suffered with a serious, serious case of bone cancer for the whole year. So they had to go through extensive chemotherapy, radiation, and even to the point where in Thanksgiving of 2014, they weren't allowed to be with family because they were susceptible to illness. So they had to isolate. They were luckily let out of the hospital right before Thanksgiving, but then they said even Christmas, they couldn't meet with that many people. And they were sharing this Tuesday before Thanksgiving, knowing that a lot of us are so frustrated by the numbers that we have to we, we can't exceed 10. And some people, this is terrible. She said, no. I never had a year like 2014. And she said, 2020 is a walk in the park comparatively. And what I've learned through 2014 is God is faithful. He will get you through some of the darkest times. And I think what our objective is, is to learn during the dark times. So when other people have dark times, we go to the valley with them and help walk them through the valley. You are to be the light. Are you shining?